Welcome back to our study this evening on the kingdom of heaven. And we are picking up kind of where we left off. We're going to do a little bit of review. Last week we began to examine uh, Christ's teaching concerning the kingdom of heaven uh, in Matthew 13 uh, in a number of parables that he tells. And so uh, we're going to do a little bit of review to catch ourselves up uh, and get ourselves back into thinking through those parables as we continue and finish out that chapter. So we'll be in Matthew chapter 13 this evening. So we're talking about the kingdom of heaven, and the kingdom, of course, is uh, that which is ruled over by the king. And so the kingdom is uh, the extent of God's reign as king. And so what is the extent of God's reign? Well, it knows no boundaries, no limits, right? God is the king over all of his creation, uh, and there is no God other than him. So he is the king over everything. So his kingdom extends uh, over all things. But we have made a distinction between the common kingdom and the kingdom of heaven. And so the common kingdom uh, being that which governs all of creation and all men, whether they are elect or reprobate, uh, just all men generally. And we said that... God organized the government of that common kingdom uh, by means of the Noahic covenant. And so the Noahic covenant that he established with Noah after the flood uh, that contains some uh, covenantal terms there such that whoever sheds man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. And so uh, we saw the establishment of civil government, uh, that it would be enacted, uh, put in place by God, delegated certain authorities in order to punish wrongdoers. And we talked about the sort of justice that civil government was to pursue, uh, justice that is uh, a punishment that comes after the crime. It's retributive, it's proportional, and its intent is to discourage other wrongdoers from committing the same sorts of uh, evil acts. So that's how God governs the common kingdom. But we said the kingdom of heaven is different, right? It's governed by the new covenant. And the kingdom of heaven contains the elect, both elect men and elect angels. It includes both elect uh, men and women who are here on earth now, but also uh, the souls of the elect who have died and gone to heaven to be with Christ are also part of the kingdom. So there's an overlap of these two kingdoms, but there's also ways in which the kingdom of heaven is distinctly different than the common kingdom. It is, after all, the kingdom of heaven. Uh, but as we begin to look at uh, Jesus' teaching on the kingdom in Matthew 13, last week uh, I wanted to prepare us to think through his teaching in the way in which his listeners would have thought about it. And so we asked, I asked the question, as Jesus began to speak to them of the kingdom of heaven, what would that have meant to them? Uh, would this have been a brand new concept when they hear the kingdom of heaven? Oh, what is this, this new teaching? Or would it have been something they were already familiar with or had some idea of? And so we looked at a few verses in Daniel chapter 2. King Nebuchadnezzar had had a dream. And so Daniel recounts his dream to him and then interprets it for him. And in the dream, Nebuchadnezzar saw uh, an image of a statue in the shape of a man made out of different sorts of metal. And at the end of recounting the dream, uh, Daniel says this in chapter 2, verse 34, You watched while a stone was cut out without hands, which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. 
Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed together and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found, and the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. So this is the end of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. He's seen this image, and then this stone comes and destroys the image, crushes it to find powder. So Daniel begins to interpret this dream, and the various aspects of this image represent different kingdoms of this earth. And then in verse 44, he says, And in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. So we said that when Jesus begins to speak about the kingdom of heaven, this is a passage that likely would have come to the, into the minds of his listeners. Oh, the kingdom of heaven. You mean the kingdom that is established by the God of heaven as promised in Daniel. The kingdom over which a son of David will rule and sit on the throne forever. Uh, the promised Messiah, this kingdom that is without end that will rule over the nations. That it will have dominion over the nations of the earth. And so that would be in their mind when Jesus says the kingdom of heaven. This is what comes into their mind. And then Jesus begins to teach them about the kingdom. Now, as he teaches, he uses parables to do so. And so we said that a parable is a simple story drawn from real life experiences used to teach or illustrate a spiritual truth. So it's a, it's a short story usually. Uh, it's drawn from something the listeners would be familiar with. Uh, so we saw uh, you know, sowing seed or baking bread, these sorts of things. Uh, but it's a story that's used to teach us a spiritual truth. And so uh, we said he's using literary devices here, one of which is allegory, uh, which means to speak other. So it's to say one thing and to mean something else by it. Uh, and so we can think about uh, John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, which is an extended allegory. Uh, and in that, he tells us the story of one man uh, leaving a city and journeying uh, through the countryside in order to get to the celestial city. But it's an allegory, and it, all, it has meaning in reference to living the Christian life, salvation, sanctification, glorification, these sorts of things. But we did say that uh, the sorts of allegories that are used in the telling of a parable tend to be simpler than that. We don't look for uh, hidden meaning in all the details. And so I shared this quote from R.C. Sproul, who said, A few parables might have two major points, or possibly even three, but we do not treat them as true allegories, finding hidden significance in every single element. So instead, we're looking for the main point of the parable. Uh, we're not looking for all this correspondence in the details, but we're looking for what is the main point this parable is teaching us. The other literary device that Jesus uses is a simile, which is a type of metaphor in which he compares one thing to another thing, and he lets us know that he's making this comparison by using the word like. And so we see this, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that is put in the dough. Uh, so he's telling us that he's using this descriptive technique of simile and what he's doing is he's comparing two things that are not the same right the kingdom of heaven and a lump of dough with some leaven put in it the kingdom of heaven is not a loaf of bread but he's using the image of the loaf of bread in order to teach us something about the kingdom and able to help us 
wrap our minds around some concept related to the kingdom. So this is what he's doing. And as we looked at chapter 13, we said that there were eight parables in two groups of four. The first four parables were given to the multitudes. The last four are given to the disciples alone. And there was a structure to the arrangement of these, this chiastic structure that we've seen in the Psalms and other places of the Hebrew Scriptures. And it exists here as well. The first parable that he tells of the sower is really an allegory. And then it is separated from the next three parables uh, by a section in which he is explaining the parable. And then the next three parables are all similes that begin with the, uh, the kingdom of heaven is like statement. Uh, and then at the end of the fourth one, we have a division between the two halves where we have some more uh, explanation of the purpose of the parables. And then Jesus explains a parable to the disciples. And then he begins to tell the disciples four parables. And the first three are the similes that begin with the kingdom of heaven is like. They're separated from the last one uh, by Jesus asking the disciples if they're understanding what he is teaching them. And then the last parable, he does use the the simile kind of language, but not right at the beginning. So it's slightly different than the other ones. So we can kind of see that structure to the whole chapter. But the first four parables that he told that we looked at last week, the parable of the sower, Uh, and the seed, the parable of the wheat and the tares, the parable of the mustard seed and of the leaven, uh, taught us one unified idea, and that was that the kingdom of heaven comes in a way in which they had not expected it. They had expected this kingdom, as they read about in Daniel, that would come where the, the Messiah would come as a conquering king who would crush the other nations and rule over them with a rod of iron. And instead, Jesus tells us that the kingdom comes with humble beginnings. It comes as a small thing, a seed that is sown or a mustard seed planted in the ground or a little bit of leaven mixed into a lump of dough. So it comes in an unexpected way. It starts in the hearts of individuals instead of as a political kingdom. So it starts working in the hearts and lives of individuals, but then it does grow. It does grow. increase until it does become that eschatological kingdom uh, for which they were hoping, right? And so it does eventually attain that majesty and that might, but it doesn't come with that majesty and that might in the way that they had expected. So that kind of catches us up, but we're going to start in verse 36. We kind of briefly looked at Jesus' explanation of this parable of the tares last week, but we're going to review it because this is really the second half of the the chapter here. In verse 36, it says, Then Jesus sent the multitude away and went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. So the multitudes have been sent away. It's just Jesus and the disciples now. And if you'll remember, he told them last week when they asked him, why do you speak in parables? He said, because it has been given to you to understand the mysteries of the kingdom, but to them it has not been given. And so I speak to them in parables so that they won't understand. It's not that the parables are terribly complicated to understand, but it has to do with whether or not a person is open Uh, to the truth that Jesus is teaching, whether you're going to receive it, believe it, obey it, or whether you're going to reject it. And so we see this in the lives of the Pharisees. They often understand what Jesus is saying. They just don't like it. And so they seek to kill him because of what he's teaching. But the disciples uh, is a different story. They they don't understand. They're asking Jesus to explain it to them. Uh, And so 
Jesus is going to explain uh, the parable of the tares to them. And so in verses 37 through 34, he explains it. He says, he answered and said to them, he who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seeds are the sons of the kingdom, but the tares are the sons of the wicked one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of this age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend those who practice lawlessness, and will cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So what he is telling them in this parable is that uh, the, the world uh, is mixed. It contains both the sons of the wicked one, those who have been planted by Satan or influenced by him, and the sons of the kingdom. Now, again, this is not a new concept for us or for anyone who is familiar with the Old Testament, right? All the way back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And so we see that right from the beginning, God said that there would be hostility, enmity between the offspring of Adam and Eve and those, the offspring of Satan. And it would consummate in the conflict between Christ and Satan. But we see it even in chapter 4 of Genesis between Cain and Abel. We begin to see this conflict. And so this parable is telling us this is what the world is like. It contains both the unregenerate and it contains the sons of the kingdom, the elect. Uh, And Christ is the sower who has sowed this good seed. So what does that mean? Well, He sowed the seed, as we've seen in the previous parables, into the hearts of the elect, and they have begun to be transformed from the inside out. They've been regenerate, but they're in the world. And so we see this teaching elsewhere in Scripture. We are in the world, but we're not of the world. Uh, So one thing that we can learn from this parable to be careful about is that we don't view the kingdom as something that is purely in the future, that is, it's the kingdom of heaven, and it's not here now. No, it is here now. The kingdom of heaven has come. It didn't come in the way that they expected, but it has come, and it will continue to grow. And so we don't want to make the mistake of of trying to separate the kingdom of heaven from the world entirely. Uh, Jesus says we can't do that. That separation will happen at the end of the age when uh, Christ and his angels will make that separation. So, uh, the kingdom is currently in the world, though not of it, and it, but it is not yet grown to that eschatological majesty that we expect, right? It's a mixed thing where the wheat and the tares are growing together. Uh, the harvest will come at the end of the age. And, you know, it's interesting that in uh, John's revelation, he picks up on a lot of this uh, imagery that's in this parable. In Revelation eleven fifteen, 15, uh, the seventh trumpet, the final trumpet, Uh, The angel goes to sound it. It says, Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. So we see there at the end of the age when the kingdom does come in its fullness, and it does crush the kingdoms of this world as was seen in Daniel's vision. Uh, But it doesn't come that way at the very beginning. But then we see in Revelation 14, uh, the 
this reaping of the harvest at the end of the age. Revelation 14, 14. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and on the cloud sat one like the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Thrust in your sickle and reap, for the time has come for you to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, he also having a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, who had power over fire, and he cried with a loud cry to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in your sharp sickle, and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. So the angel thrust his sickle into the earth, and gathered the vine of the earth, and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trampled outside the city, and blood came out of the winepress up to the horse's bridles for 1,600 furlong. So we have this image of the harvest at the end of the age when Christ gathers his elect to him, and the angels are sent out to gather the non-elect, and they experience the wrath of God pictured in the trampling of the grapes in the winepress. But here in this analogy, that comes in them being cast into the fire uh, is, is the language that's used. And of course, we see that uh, in Revelation 19 and 20 uh, when he talks about the lake of fire and Satan and his demons and all those whose names are not found written in the book of life cast into that lake of fire. So again, The kingdom didn't come as they expected it to, but it will eventually become uh, this overarching kingdom where Christ will rule over the nations of the earth and there will be judgment on that day. So Jesus explains this parable to the disciples and then he goes right into teaching them some more parables. And these ones again are similes. And so in verse 44, he says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and hid, and for joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. So the kingdom, the rule of Christ, is like a treasure that is hidden in a field. It's valuable. It's of great worth. And so we might think as as we ponder that idea, the worth of the rule and reign of Christ as our Lord, What is that worth to us? We'll consider the words of Paul in Philippians 3. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet, indeed, I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. So Christ, Paul says that Christ as his Lord is worth more than anything he could possess in this earth. By any means he wishes to attain that life, that resurrection life that is found only in Christ Christ is of incredible value, like a treasure hidden in a field. And again, Jesus' words in Revelation, uh, in the letters to the churches, when he writes to the church at Laodicea, he tells them, uh, because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. So they thought 
they were wealthy. They had lots of material wealth. They had everything that they needed. But Jesus says they're actually poor. And so he says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich and white garments that you may be clothed that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. So his point was that all the wealth they had in the world didn't matter if they didn't have Christ. And so he tells them to buy from him those things that are of true value. And of course, we know from Isaiah 55, one, that we are to come and buy without cost uh, these things that only Christ can provide. So the wealth of this world is of no value compared to the value of the kingdom of heaven. Uh, in, in his letter to the church in Colossae, Paul tells us in Colossians 2, verse 1, For I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea, interesting, the same church, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts may be encouraged, be knit together in love, and attaining to all riches of the full assurance of understanding to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ, in God. And Paul's desire was that we would gain that treasure, not treasures of this earth, but treasures of the kingdom, treasures that are only found in Christ, who is the wisdom of God. And so really, when we think about this parable, a guy looks at a field, he happens to find a treasure hidden in that field. And, and if you think about uh, life in ancient Israel, uh, they didn't have a, a safe deposit box uh, to put their treasure in. And so at times, they might bury a treasure in order to keep it hidden. Uh, and you think about Jeremiah uh, when there's a war going on and he buys a field uh, and has a deed written for that field and then has it put in a jar uh, and put in a safe place, buried, so that he can find it later when the time comes. So this is as if you had stumbled across this treasure that someone has buried in a field and you see the great worth of it. And so because of the joy of finding this treasure of immense value, you go and sell everything you have in order to buy the field because you know the treasure that's in the field, right? Um, R.C. Sproul actually tells a very humorous story about that. I don't know if any of you have heard it, um, about when he was living in Pennsylvania, had an opportunity to buy about 60 acres, and uh, the real estate agent told him it was undervalued because the couple that was selling it was getting divorced, and that if he bought it, he would be able to turn around and sell it for twice as much as he paid for it. So he bought it for $200 an acre, uh, imagine that, and he later sold it for $400 an acre. So he did, double his money on it, made a few thousand dollars. Uh, but he says that he had, before he sold it, he had a company called him and said they wanted to come out and test drill because they thought there was a uh, bed of coal that ran underneath that property. And so they came out and they drilled, and he was there when they drilled, and he says the drill went down for a while, and then this black stuff started coming up, and the guy jumped down off the piece of machinery. Yes, it's coal. We found the coal. And then, and he said, so he said I thought I was a millionaire. And he says, my millionaire status lasted about 15 minutes because they kept drilling and dirt started coming back up again. And uh, turns out, you know, the coal wasn't very thick. There's not enough value here. We're not interested. So they didn't buy the property. But then somebody bought it and paid him the $400 uh, 
uh, an acre that he was asking for it. And then a few months later, he was driving back down that road by that property and he saw all this machinery out there as they were mining coal off that property. And he was like, I've been had. Somebody saw that there was treasure buried in the field. They gave me what I wanted for the property uh, and they got rich off of it. But that's the idea here, that you, you sell everything you have in order to obtain uh, this treasure that's hidden in the field. And this treasure is the kingdom, which is the reign of Christ in our hearts. Uh, it made me think of that quote that you're probably familiar with from Jim Elliott, who said, He is no fool who gains, uh, gives what he cannot keep to gain. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Uh, so... We can't hope to keep the treasures of this earth. But if we attain the kingdom, we can't lose it. It's a kingdom that lasts forever. Uh, And so it's a treasure that is worth having. Uh, Gaining Christ is never a loss. It's always a gain and it is a joy, according to this parable. Uh, And so this parable is teaching us the surpassing worth of the kingdom, even though the kingdom isn't coming in the manner in which they might have expected it. It's not the political kingdom conquering the nations that they had hoped and expected that it would be. It's coming in a surprising and small way as it begins in the hearts of men, and yet it is of surpassing value. Matthew Henry commented and said, those who discern this treasure in the field and value it aright will never be at ease until they have made it their own on any terms. And that's what Paul expressed there in that passage in Philippians. By any means, I would gain Christ and the resurrection life that is found in him. So then Jesus tells another parable in verses 45 and 46. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls, who when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. So this is similar to the previous uh, parable that he just told of the treasure in the field. But in this one, uh, we have a search uh, for beautiful pearls. We have a merchant that is out searching for things of value. Right? He's looking for spiritual treasure. But nothing he can find is of comparison to the value of Christ. And so when he finds that one pearl of great price, which is the kingdom, which is Christ, uh, it so far surpasses uh, the value of everything that this merchant has accumulated. And he's a merchant of rarities, right? He, He seeks out beautiful pearls, but everything that he's gathered, he'll sell it all in order to get this one pearl because it is of such surpassing value. And again, this is not language that would have been unfamiliar to Jesus' disciples. If we think about uh, the, the proverb, the teaching of the Proverbs, which, which they would have been familiar, uh, consider this passage in Proverbs 2. My son, if you receive my words and treasure my commands within you so that you incline your ear to wisdom and apply your heart to understanding, yes, if you cry out for discernment and lift up your voice for understanding, if you seek her as silver and search for her as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. And there are multiple passages throughout the Proverbs that speak about gaining wisdom uh, in that fashion. That's Proverbs 2, 1 through 4, but also in Proverbs 3, 13 through 15, and Proverbs 8, verses 10 and 19, we see the same sort of language that godly wisdom is of such great value that we should search for it as for uh, hidden treasure or as if it were something of great value. 
And Christ, of course, is the wisdom of God. And as Paul wrote in Colossians, all the treasures of the wisdom of God are found in Christ. And so uh, the kingdom is worth more than whatever else we could accumulate. And it's not just material wealth, right? In this parable, this is a merchant of rarities, of beautiful pearls, but then he finds the one pearl that is of great price, and so he sells all the others to gain it. So we're, we're comparing pearls to one another. We're not comparing apples to pearls. And so this made me consider and think about, well, this isn't just about material wealth. This is about uh, whatever other spiritual truth we might find in the world, right? The philosophies of the world, the other religions of the world, they're of no value compared to Christ and his kingdom. Uh, the, the philosophies and religions of this world uh, are something we should divest ourselves of in order to gain Christ and his kingdom. And of course, it also uh, brought to mind Revelation 21, 21, which describes the new Jerusalem descending from heaven uh, to the new heavens and the new earth. And it says that the 12 gates were 12 pearls. Each individual gate was of one pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. And the gates of the city are what? The entrance into the city. And so this, great, this pearl of great price that this merchant finds is like gaining entrance into the kingdom. Uh, it is of extreme value and worth. In Matthew uh, chapter 16, just a few pages over, Jesus says this in Matthew 16, 24. Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? What is your soul worth to you? Well, your soul is only secure if it is in the kingdom of heaven, if you are a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And the world is not worth your soul, much less the kingdom of heaven and Christ himself. And so this, these two parables both are teaching us the great value of the kingdom and how desirable it is and the effort that we should go to to gain it. Now, interestingly, as I was thinking about this, Lauren and I are considering getting her a different vehicle, one that has four-wheel drive. Um, and so I'm looking at her minivan and trying to figure out what is the value of this van if we go to sell it or to trade it in. And so I'm looking at the Kelly Blue Book value. I'm looking at uh, online if I can see other places that have the similar van for sale and what are they valuing it at. And as we think about uh, economics and, and how we value products in the economic sphere of this world, that value is somewhat subjective, right? The value of that van may not be to the dealer what I think it is. Right? It may be of more value to me or it may be of more value to one dealer than it is to another depending on his needs or his inventory on his lot. So the value is kind of subjective. And so that's how our economic system works. Unfortunately, in our culture, we've begun to view truth in the same way and believe that truth is also subjective and it's dependent upon whatever I think truth is or whatever you think truth is uh, and that there is no objective truth. But I think what these parables are teaching us is that just like truth, um, truth is objective 
It's not subjective. It's not whatever we want it to be. It's whatever God says that it is. And so when we become Christians, we become believers, part of our sanctification is the renewing of our minds so that we recognize truth as God declares it to be. Well, the same thing is true of value as we consider the value of the kingdom and the value of our soul as Jesus asks his disciples in chapter 16. It's not subjective. It shouldn't be. Part of our sanctifying process is not just to renew our minds so that we recognize the objective truth that God has declared, but also that we begin to recognize the value that God has placed on things, the value that he has said is inherent in a human being because it is made in the image of God, the value of your eternal soul, the value of knowing Christ and his kingdom. It's not subjective. It's not worth whatever this person thinks it's worth. It's worth whatever God says it's worth. And God says that his kingdom is worth everything. It's worth more than the riches of this world. It's worth more than any religious or philosophical uh, truth that you may think you've found in this world. It is worth what God says it is worth. And so I believe these two parables are teaching us that we should examine our own heart to see what am I valuing the most? Am I valuing Christ and his kingdom or am I valuing the things of this world or uh, the teachings of this world, the philosophies of this world? The kingdom begins small and internally, not with earthly glory. And so we might think, well, what value does that have? Well, God says it has all value. It's more valuable than anything else. Well, then in verse 47, he tells another parable. He says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet that is cast into the sea and gathered some of every kind, which when it was full, they drew to shore and they sat down and gathered the good into vessels, but threw the bad away. So this is, again, an image just drawn from everyday life. Several of the uh, disciples were fishermen, so they would have immediately understood what he's talking about. They take a net, they cast it into the sea. It's got some floats on the top, some weights on the bottom, and then they can gather it and drag it in either between two boats or by pulling on the ropes, and it just scoops up everything in its path, right? And so they get it into the shore, and they have to sort through and get out the fish that are too small that we can't eat or the fish that nobody wants to eat, and and the good ones are put into a different basket. He says in verse 49, So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth, separate the wicked from among the just, and cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. So this is very similar to the parable of the wheat and the tares that he told earlier. Uh, But he's telling us here that um, the kingdom, the gospel, the good news of the king... Christ and his kingdom uh, is proclaimed to all mankind. We don't know which ones are the good soil as per the first parable that he told in the chapter. We don't know which ones are the good fish and the bad fish. So we spread the net wide, right? We, we cast the gospel out to all men uh, and then we leave it to Christ to sort out the good fish from the bad fish and he will do that at the final judgment. And at the judgment, those who did not treasure the kingdom will be cast out and those who did treasure the kingdom will be gathered uh, to him. And so we see like in Matthew chapter 25, verse 32, 
Jesus says, all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. So there Jesus uses another simile to uh, describe to us what this will be like. He just gathers them all up and then he separates them out and sorts them out at the, the final judgment. And so if we think about this parable on the heels of the other ones that we've just seen, We've seen that the kingdom begins small, it begins internally in the heart, but that it will grow and reach that eschatological stage where judgment will come. And Jesus tells us that the value of being in the kingdom or of possessing the kingdom is of greater value than anything else that you could possibly possess. And then he describes here this sorting that will happen at the end of the age when the wicked will be cast into the furnace of fire. Is it worth what Jesus said it was worth? Or should you pursue the things that are of value to you? Well, do you want to be cast into the the furnace of fire or do you want to be gathered to Christ at the end? Uh, He's telling us that there is eternal punishment coming. So as he finishes this parable... Uh, He then asked the disciples a question. Jesus said to them, have you understood all these things? They said to him, yes, Lord. I think that's a a little optimistic on their part, possibly. Uh, But he has explained at least a couple of these parables to them so that they would understand them. Uh, Obviously, their understanding is not perfect we know ours is not perfect. 1 Corinthians 13, 12, we see through a glass darkly. We don't have perfect understanding. But uh, as James Montgomery Boyce says in his commentary on the Gospel of Matthew, uh, they, what they did understand, they believed. They believed that that they did understand. Uh, so they may not have had complete understanding, but they received and accepted and believed that which they did understand. So then Jesus tells them one more parable here. Then he said to them, therefore, ev- therefore, because you understand, every scribe instructed concerning the kingdom of heaven is like a householder who brings out of his treasure things new and old. So again, he's uh, giving us a parable of the kingdom, and here he he's talks about a scribe. Now, what is a scribe? As we think about ancient Israel, a scribe was uh, someone who was very learned uh, and, and scholarly. Uh, we can think about Uh, them being highly trained experts in the law, that is, in the Old Testament. They were the ones who made copies of the Old Testament scriptures. They had to be very precise and careful in their scribing, copying those Old Testament scriptures. Uh, They were the ones who taught and interpreted the Old Testament scriptures. So an example would be Ezra. Ezra was a scribe who taught the people the law of God. Now, we also have Negative examples of the scribes throughout the New Testament, though they are those who are gathered with the Pharisees and the priests against Christ. But uh, the duty of a scribe itself is not necessarily a bad thing. And so here's a scribe who's been instructed or trained uh, concerning the kingdom of heaven. He's been instructed. He's been taught. Interestingly, this is the same Greek word that Jesus uses in the Great Commission when he tells us that we are to go into all the nations, make disciples, baptize them, and teach them everything that he has commanded us. It's the same word here. We're to instruct them, to train them, right? And so uh, this scribe has been instructed and trained in the kingdom concerning the things of the kingdom. Well, what has Jesus just been doing with his disciples? He's been instructing them. 
in the things of the kingdom. He's been explaining the parables, teaching them about the nature of the kingdom, the value of the kingdom, the, the way the kingdom grows, and, and what will happen when it does reach its eschatological end. Well, he says that this scribe who has been trained in things of the kingdom is like a householder who brings out of his treasure things new and old. So a householder is like the head of the household or the master of an estate. Uh, And so he has uh, a treasure. I think what it means here is like a treasure room, a storehouse, right? He's got a vault with good things in it. Think about uh, he's gathered up uh, the fruit of his estate over the course of the, the harvest season, even previous harvest seasons. He's filled his storehouse full of these things. He has a family and servants who work for him, and so he provides for them. He brings out of his treasure uh, things new and old, things, Calvin says, in abundance and variety, fresh produce and good vintage. Uh, He brings these things out to provide for those who are dependent upon him. Uh, The mysteries of the kingdom that were previously hidden but have now been revealed in Christ, and we see Paul reference that. Uh, Just think about, I think an example of this is the Psalms. Uh, The Psalms of David and Asaph and these various writers uh, who wrote these Psalms. And and if you read them uh, without a knowledge of Christ, without the lens of Christ, then you see songs of the old covenant nation of Israel. But when we read the Psalms through the lens of Christ, the book of Psalms is quoted more than any other Old Testament book in the New Testament. It's applied over and over and over again to Jesus in a prophetic way. In fact, right here in Matthew 13, back in verse 35, a psalm is quoted and said that Jesus is fulfilling the prophecy of Psalm 78. So we can now read the psalms with this new, these new eyes where we can see Christ in them, and it opens up treasures in the psalms that were previously hidden to us because we didn't know Christ. So the, the scribe who has been trained and instructed concerning the kingdom of heaven brings out of his storehouse of training things old and new in abundance and a variety of the hidden mysteries of the scripture uh, in order to lay those things out. And so uh, we are to lay up treasures so that we might lay them out uh, for others to partake of. We are not uh, to just simply gather up knowledge of the kingdom in, in order to satisfy our own curiosity and to fill up our head with knowledge. That's not what it's about. We're to gather up the truths of the kingdom so that we can share them with others. The kingdom is of utmost worth and value, and it doesn't lose its value when we share it with other people. It's not like a treasure that we need to hoard for ourselves. It actually increases in value as we share it with others. I think we can also learn from this that discipleship uh, happens first, but we are discipled so that we can disciple. And so I think of 2 Timothy 2.2, where Paul instructs Timothy to the things that you have learned from me in the presence of many witnesses, pass on to faithful men who will be able to train others. And so we're to take the things that we have learned and share them with others so that they can share them with others and so that the kingdom can continue to grow and reach its eschatological end. The kingdom doesn't come in the way that Israel expected it to come. 
It comes in this unexpected manner where it begins in the heart in small ways and works its way outward, transforming us from the inside out and transforming the world until eventually uh, the kingdom does come in its fullness at Christ's return. But the kingdom is of great value. It's not to be hoarded. It loses no value when we share it with others, but it is to be proclaimed to all men just as the net is cast in and gathered up and we leave the sorting to Christ when he returns at the end of the age. Let's pray.